0: Amen. Turning your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter one. We are in the never-ending series on the authority of the believer. Uh, I was out of town last Wednesday night, so I missed being with you. So you know what that means. We have to start all over. <laughs> start from the beginning and cover the same territory that we've covered before. I, um, uh, I I'm not serious about that. Uh, well, in, at least not entirely serious about that. Uh, but I learned at the feet of Brother Hagen, who was the the supreme repeater. So, I'm like Paul. I don't kind of the light thing to put you in remembrance of what we've said before. Genesis chapter one, verse twenty six, it tells us that after God created the earth, the sky, the the moon, the stars, put everything in place, commanded the boundaries on the seas and the oceans, made the dry land appear made all the trees, the grass, all the animals, everything that was there, therein, in the earth. It says in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and the cattle of the earth and over all the work of our hands. I say this every time that we read this scripture because I'm hoping that it'll sink in. It is an indisputable fact that God created man for one purpose, and that is for him to have dominion in the earth. Now, folks, when God gave man dominion in the earth, that was not a short-term thing. Psalm 115, verse 16 says, The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth is he given to the children of men. When God gave man dominion in Genesis 126, it was a dominion that was in, intended to last throughout the end of the age of man. Now, where it says after his image or in his image and after his likeness, it means God made man an exact duplication of Himself. The law of Genesis is that everything produces after its own kind. Well, when God made man, we would expect the same principle to be in, in effect, would we not? He made him. He made man. God made man after His own kind, an exact copy. A spirit being an eternal spirit. And he intended for man to have dominion over the earth. Still does. Now we know what happened. God commanded man, gave one commandment to man, and man messed it up. He said you can eat of every uh, every tree in the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The uh, Amplified calls that the tree of the knowledge of blessing and calamity. I think that's a good way to look at it. But God said, in the day that you eat thereof, if you disobey, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, did God want man to die? Well, then God is expressing his will in giving him a warning about what would happen if he disobeyed the commandment, is he not? It's the will of God, it was the will of God for man to live on the earth without being tainted or affected or influenced by sin in any form whatsoever. Now we know God never changes. He said that himself. He said I am God I change not. So if that was God's plan in the in the beginning, what would his plan be now? It would have to be the same would it not? If his will is changed then the Bible's a lie. Well that can't be so. One thing the Bible says God can't do is lie. So his will was for man to be free from sin. That was his original will when he created man, put him in the Garden of Eden. And it's his will for man now. But we know what happened. We know that Satan came on the scene, deceived Eve, influenced Adam to, use, to misuse his authority. Now, it's interesting to notice, and it's important to notice, that Satan could not just take whatever he wanted. It's also important to notice that Satan had to take the bodily form of a a serpent in order to be able to interact with man. That's hugely important, folks. Evil spirits have little, if any, power to operate on the earth unless they can inhabit some physical form. The devil wants you to think that he can do whatever he wants to and that he's all-powerful. And that if he decides to set his sights on you and make you his target. Then he can just do whatever he wants. But that's not true. Man has authority on the earth. And as I said Satan couldn't take any authority. He couldn't utilize any authority. The only thing he could do was lie to mankind. For the purpose of getting man to misuse his own authority. To use his lips. His tongue. His actions. In a contrary manner to the will of God. And man died spiritually. Now it's important to notice also. And I, I think a lot of times we just take these things for granted. But I've come to realize that it's important to stop and, and, and voice some of these things. So that we stop and think about it. Because I think we just make assumptions that sometimes leave us in the dark. When the Bible says God made man and put him in the garden of Eden. It says he formed man out of the dust of the earth. And then he breathed into him and he became a living soul. Well, when man was made or created, it wasn't when God formed him from the dust of the earth. It was when he breathed into him. That's when the Bible says he became a living soul. So what was the source of his life? Whatever God breathed into him what did God breathe into him? Well, the only thing that the Bible says God is, is spirit. Jesus said it to the woman at the well of Samaria. In John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Well, if God is a spirit, and he made man an exact copy of himself, then he breathed spirit into Adam and Eve's body. He breathed spirit. So what does that mean? That means the source of his life, the origin of his life, and the origin of his words was his spirit. God created man with his tongue hooked up to his spirit. But when man died spiritually, he became separated from God. Then his spirit is no longer, or his tongue is no longer hooked up to his spirit. His tongue is now influenced by his mind. And his five physical senses and the information that they're providing for him. The greatest thing that happened as far as man's exercise of dominion on the earth at the fall. And I don't mean to minimize spiritual death. That's certainly the worst thing that could happen under any circumstances. But when it comes to the exercise of his authority. The worst thing that happened to him was that he lost control of his tongue. When I say he, I mean his spirit his tongue became disconnected from his spirit. Now he's speaking according to his five physical senses and the influence of those five physical senses on the human mind. So he speaks fear. Now, how was it that God expected man to exercise dominion in the earth? Well, the Bible tells us 10 different times in Genesis chapter 1 that at the creation, God said, he looked into the darkness and said, let there be light. God said that the firmament be divided from above the earth and the waters be divided from the land and so forth. He said 10 different times what he intended and what he desired to be, and it was so. Now, why does the Bible tell us that God spoke 10 different times to create the earth? Why didn't it just say one time and God said, let there be animals and trees and grass and sky and sun and moon and stars and that kind of thing? Because it's trying to show us the pattern. Since man was created in God's image, an exact copy of himself as a spirit being, man's exercise of dominion on the earth was intended to be the same as God's exercise of dominion to create the earth. And that is through words. So when man lost control of his tongue, at the fall they messed up everything about the system that God had established well now man is separated or estranged from god god's locked out literally from the earth that he created now I know a lot of people from a religious standpoint take the position that god is all powerful there's nothing he can't do and so on and so forth and since god didn't stop adam from disobeying the commandment from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then even if we can't say God did it, he certainly allowed it. Well, Let's think about that for a minute. How could God have stopped that? There's only one way that God could have stopped that. And that is for man, not really to have been given dominion in the earth for man's will and choice not to rule on the earth, but rather God step in and usurp his his will and his choice well then that would make the word of god a lie in genesis 126 would it not and after the fall why didn't god come down and make another man form another man from the dust of the earth breathe into him and start all over see so many times the church world has the idea that god could just come and wipe the devil out if he wanted to well he certainly has the power to do that but in order to do that he would have to violate his word And Psalm 138 verse 2 says that we should praise the Lord because he has magnified his word above his name. In other words, his word is the final authority. It's the final answer for anything and everything God will do. Maybe not what he can do, but for what he will do. So God could not have come down and formed another man from the dust of the earth because the earth is under the dominion of man. It's in Adam's hands. And for God to do that, he would have had to violate his own word. So God's left with an unhappy dilemma. He's locked out of the creation that he made for himself, that he put under the dominion of man. Well, the only way that God can overcome that is start making covenants with man. According to the will of man, he makes arrangements varying degrees of fellowship and blessings through covenants that he creates with man finally he gets to the place where he makes the covenant with Abraham and his seed we know from Galatians chapter 3 that it wasn't a covenant with Abraham and his seeds meaning Israel even though they were included but it was specifically a covenant with Abraham and his seed singular referring to Jesus thank God that's true Because now the blessing of Abraham can belong and does belong to everybody who's in Christ. Well, as a part of that covenant that God makes with Abraham, he gives Israel the law, the law of Moses. Now, there's a a very important event that takes place during the time that God delivers Israel from the bondage of Egypt. It's in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. It's when they come to the edge of the promised land. It was God's will for Israel to enter into the promised land, but they rebelled against God and through their own choice, the exercise of their own dominion, said we can't do what God said we can do. And so they failed to enter in. And you know the story. They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. But in Numbers chapter 14, verse 28, I want you to look at this scripture because it's part of the old covenant. It's part of the blessings that God has promised Abraham and his seed and he's saying here's the law of the old covenant here's the law of man notice this is after they've rebelled this is after Israel has lifted up their voice and believed the report of the ten spies who said we can't do it and the people in the land are stronger than us and we'll die and all the other things they said God says to Moses numbers 14 28 he said say unto them Make sure they know this, as truly as I live. Now, the word "truly" is in italics, so it's not in the original transcript. So it should really read, "As I live, as they have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto them." Now, the first phrase we kind of look at that as kind of introductory, how-to-do stuff, and the important thing is the last part of what God said. But the first part of what he said is very important too. Where he says, as I live, or as, like I said, the King James says, as truly as I live. Stop and think about what that means. How does God live? Eternally. So he's saying very simply this, and other translations bring this out. He's saying this is an eternal, unchanging law. This is an eternal, unchanging law. Now let me ask you a question. When did God establish that eternal and unchanging law? Notice what the law is that never changes. As you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. Where did that law begin? In Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness an exact copy of ourselves. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit said among themselves. And let them have dominion over the work of our hands. And over all the earth. Here's the unchanging law. The beginning of the unchanging law. Man has authority. How does he have authority? Through the words of his mouth. Through the words of his mouth. Well time passes. Israel rebels against God. Time after time after time. They go back into captivity. Delivered again. Through the mercy of God and so forth. Until Jesus comes on the scene. Now I want you to turn with me over to John chapter 2. We don't know too much about Jesus' early life. When he was growing up. Except that we do have a, uh, a story. In the scripture of when he was 12 years old. He was left behind when his family went with a caravan of other people that were traveling together. To Jerusalem for one of the feasts. They thought he was part of the company, but after three days on their way back home, having left Jerusalem after the feast was over, they realized Jesus is not there. So mom and dad, Joseph and Mary, turn around and go back to to Jerusalem and they find him in the temple. The Bible says that Jesus was in the temple asking questions of of the rabbis that they couldn't answer and answering their questions in such a way that they were amazed at his wisdom. Well, mom and dad were upset, as you can well understand. I would be if it had been me. They were upset, and they said, why have you done this? And Why have you put us through this? We didn't know what had happened to you. We were so worried, all the stuff that parents would say. And Jesus said, how is it that you didn't know where I was? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? So at age 12, Jesus understood his purpose, at least in part, Here on the earth, he understood that God was his father and he understood that he had a a specific purpose to bring the will of God to pass here on the earth for the benefit of mankind. We don't know what happened to him after that until he was age 30 when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. But in John chapter 2, it tells us immediately after Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, it says, well, we'll just start reading in verse 1, John chapter 2, verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. Now notice Jesus already has called his disciples, so he's already been out there for a bit. But this says, this story tells us that the turning of the water into wine was the first miracle that Jesus produced or performed. Now, if the Bible is true and the Bible is accurate, and and John particularly, the gospel of John particularly, John was the, the last gospel that was written of the four. He knew of the other three. John wrote it when he was about 90 or 95 years old. This gospel was written some 60 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. So the church has been going for about 60 years at the time this gospel is written. The Gospel of John is interesting to me because it covers things and relates stories and incidents in the life and the ministry of Jesus when he was here on the earth that the others don't cover. John, being one of the the closest in the inner circle of Jesus, would be privy to all these. He'd be an eyewitness of these stories and accounts. And it's almost like he comes back after the fact and says, Now, I know what Matthew, Mark, and Luke said. But there were other things that took place in the ministry of Jesus that is important for you to know. So it's like he fills in the blanks. You know what I mean by that? He tells us things that the others don't tell us. He gives us a lot of information about the last night that he was with Jesus, the night that Jesus was betrayed at the Last Supper and so forth, the things that Jesus taught them. The Gospel of John is a wealth of information, at least in that regard. Now, John comes back and says, this is the first miracle. If Jesus has been preaching and has disciples, yet this is the first miracle, then that must mean that Jesus has been preaching for a while without any results. See, we always think that Jesus got instant results. But we know that Jesus' results were dependent on the faith of the people. We know in his own hometown of Nazareth, Luke chapter 4 and, Matthew, and Mark chapter 6. The Bible tells us in Mark 6 5 that Jesus could there in his own hometown of Nazareth do no mighty work, except that he laid his hands on a few sickly folks and got them healed. A few folks with minor ailments, but he didn't have any cripples healed, no blind eyes opened, no major miracles. And it says he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus told the disciples when he sent them out, he said, go into the towns and if they will receive you, then heal the sick that are in and preach. Saying the kingdom of God is at hand. So it could have been for a period of time. We don't know how long. I can't imagine it was real long. But it could have been for a period of time. John seems to indicate this at least that Jesus preached that the kingdom of God is at hand without getting any results. It took a while for people to believe So that the miracles could occur. That's the only way you can explain John chapter 2 saying that this is the first of the miracles. Now another option, another possibility. Is that he doesn't consider the healings to be miracles. He's using the word miracle as a, as a, a category all of its own. To differentiate between the water turning into wine as opposed to healing the sick. That doesn't make much sense to me, but it's possible. Nevertheless, the Bible indicates to us that this is the first of Jesus' miracles. And notice what happened. Both Jesus was called, verse 2 again, and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, said unto Jesus, they have no wine. Now, why is she coming to him? If he hasn't done any miracles before, why is she coming to him? And even if he has healed the sick, which the Bible would indicate that he did not yet at this point, if he has healed the sick, how does that relate to water and wine? Why does she come to him? Now, folks, the thing I want to get you to see is very simply this. Jesus was a man without sin. He was born of a virgin, which means he bypassed the the, the spiritual death and the sin that passed upon all mankind. He's in the same condition as Adam. Before the fall, the source of his life is spirit, the spirit of God that is within him. His tongue is hooked up to his spirit. Jesus said in John 663, "The words I speak unto you, they are spirit and their life. Why? Because his tongue was hooked up to his spirit. Jesus certainly knows the eternal law of God, as you've spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you." He would certainly be a candidate, the best candidate ever for the blessing of Abraham in every aspect of his life, would he not? What does his mother know about him? Well, it seems to indicate that whenever she has a problem, she goes to him. Jesus, they, they want wine. They're out of wine. Jesus answers kind of a strange answer. He says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. Now his mother said unto the servants. It would seem that she's been rebuffed a little bit. But instead of getting her feelings hurt. She gives instructions to the servants. She tells the servants. Whatever he says to you. Do. Now folks my mom loves me with all of her heart. She thinks I'm great. Moms are like that. Only moms are like that. We look at some people and think, do they even have a mom? But somewhere there's a mom that loves them dearly and thinks they're just wonderful. But as much as my mom loves me, she would never put herself, there would never a situation arise where she would give instruction to people, whatever he tells you to do, do it. That's just not the relationship I have with my mom. But they do. The one characteristic, That the mother of Jesus points out. Is that his words matter. Whatever he tells you to do. Do. What would put her in a position. To take that. Or to say that to the servants. She must have experience with that. Should she not. I can't think of any other reason. Why she'd say that. She goes to Jesus. To fix the problem. What's he supposed to do about no wine at the the wedding it's an indication to me that she's seen supernatural things in the life of Jesus well the blessing of Abraham includes the supernatural not miracles for other people nevertheless but even Abraham prayed for Abimelech and he was healed so to what degree Jesus has experienced the supernatural As a part of the blessing of Abraham because he's never broken the law. Because his spirit is righteous. Before God. Jesus is the perfect candidate for the blessing of Abraham. Had Jesus wanted to. Had it been God's plan for his life Jesus could have been the richest man on the earth. But that wasn't what God sent him here for. But I hope you see the point. The blessing of Abraham would be magnified in great degree in Jesus' life because he was keeper of the law, never broke the law. And the thing that his mother recognizes or points out more than anything else is the validity of his words. The validity of his words. Well, you know the story. He turns the water into wine. Nobody except the servants really know what's going on. But they knew because they were the ones that filled the water pots and then took them to the governor of the feast. Now turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is entering into his ministry, doing healing miracles. Tells us about the centurion, verse 5. When Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy grievously tormented and jesus said unto him i will come and heal him the centurion answered and said lord i am not worthy that thou should come under my roof but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed for i am a man under authority having soldiers under me and i say to this man go and he goes and to another come and he cometh and to my servant do this and he doeth it when jesus heard it he marvelled and said unto them that followed verily i say unto you i have not found so great faith No, not in Israel. Then he talks about the Gentiles coming from all quarters, all different directions. And sitting down in the kingdom of God, partaking in the kingdom of God. But the children of the kingdom, meaning the children of Israel, being left out. And there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then he says to the centurion, go thy way as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. Now what was it about the centurion that caused Jesus to magnify And point out the greatness of his faith. Well he said it was his understanding of authority. But I think we can break it down even further. He understood the power of words. He understood the power of words. He said all I need you to do Jesus is speak the word. And my servant will be healed. Well if he didn't understand the power of words. And the authority exercised through the speaking of words. He couldn't have been in a position to say that, could he? And Jesus marvels for a couple of reasons. But one of the main reasons that he marvels is that he hadn't found that faith in Israel. Now, why is he marveling at that? Because Israel is the one that was given the eternal law of God concerning man's authority. As you've spoken in my ear, so shall I do unto you. You would think the the eternal unchanging law... Relative to the exercise of man's authority on the earth, his dominion on the earth, being controlled by that one foundational law. As you've spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. You'd think that would be important enough for Israel to pay attention to. But they didn't. But somebody else did. A Roman centurion did. And Jesus marveled because he understood the power of words and the words that Jesus spoke took care of the situation. Now turn with me over to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Jesus spent a lot of time talking about authority. He spent a lot of time speaking things relative to authority. In uh, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, the Bible says people marveled we were astonished at his teaching because he taught them as one having authority. Now, we've made this statement before, but the King James says one having authority. The word one is in italics. That means they added that. It literally says they were astonished at his doctrine or his teaching because he taught them as having authority. That, those two words, as having, literally means how to hold. Jesus went around teaching people that man had authority on the earth. Luke 4.32 says it this way, they were astonished at his doctrine for his word was with power. They weren't astonished at him, they were astonished at his teaching. Because what he taught was then demonstrated by the power of God in action. So the Jews have a hard time with Jesus because he's doing miracles and they don't want to follow him. So beginning in verse 27, Mark chapter 11, verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there came to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And they said unto him, now notice their question. Stop and think about this for a minute, folks. They've seen Jesus doing miracles. They don't like the miracles that he does because he's not part of their group. He heals on the Sabbath day, and they don't like that. That's breaking of their traditions. But when they come to Jesus and really want to know something, they ask him about authority. So they came to him and they said, by what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? They want to know where did you get the authority and who gave it to you? What authority do you do these things and who who delivered it unto you? Where did you get it? Now, Jesus responds by asking them a question. Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question, ask of you one question, and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So here's this question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. Well, they're they're afraid to answer. They reasoned with themselves, saying, if we shall say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? well they can't answer that but if we say of men they feared the people for all men counted john that he was a prophet indeed so they bailed out they answered jesus and said we cannot tell and jesus answering said unto them neither do i tell you by what authority i do these things they can ask you a question why in the world does the holy ghost give us this account Is this account in there just for us to understand that Jesus stumped them? That was a regular occurrence with Jesus. We really don't need this story, this account, to let us know that Jesus would stump the Pharisees through his wisdom. So why is this here? It's here for one reason, folks. Because the answer to their question Or the answer to Jesus' question that he asked about the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men, is the answer to their question about authority. If we understand that, then we'll understand the authority that Jesus operated in and the authority that he gave us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Look at chapter 12. Jesus describes his authority. He began to speak to them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged a place for a wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went to a far country. Now, these are just elements of a very prosperous garden or vineyard, well-equipped. The vineyard he's talking about is the earth. This is a parable about the earth and God and the treatment of God's servants and his son. And at the season, he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. In other words, at harvest time, the owner of the vineyard wanted his share of the fruit that was produced. And they caught him. They caught the servant and beat him and sent him away empty. That's a type of what Israel did to the prophets. And again, he sent unto them another servant. And at him, they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. That's what they did to the other prophets. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others beating some and killing some. That's a synopsis or a summary of Israel's treatment of the prophets of God in the Old Testament. Having there yet for having yet therefore, excuse me, one son, his well beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves this is the heir come let us kill him and the inheritance shall be ours and they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard what shall therefore the lord of the vineyard do he will come and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard unto others and have you not read this scripture the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner this was the lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes and they sought to lay hold on him but feared the people For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And they left him and went their way. Now back to the question that was asked. By what authority do you do these things? And where did you get this authority? Jesus responds by saying I've got a question for you. You answer mine and I'll answer yours. Literally the answer to his question. Jesus' question. Was the answer to theirs as well. The baptism of John. Was it of men or was it of heaven? Well they were afraid to say that it was of men. But it was. Remember in Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to Ephesus. He finds certain disciples and he asks them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? They said, We've never heard that there be such a thing as the Holy Ghost. And P- Paul's kind of stumped. He thought they were saved. And he said, Well, then, under what are you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Paul explains and he says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. But he spoke of one coming after him, that is Christ Jesus. And so they got saved and then got filled with the Holy Ghost. The baptism of men was the baptism of repentance. That was John's baptism. But remember what John preached? He said, there's one coming after me that I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. He'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. The baptism of repentance is a baptism of men. But John was anointed of the Holy Ghost to preach the coming of Jesus and the baptism of heaven. So the answer to the question, both the question Jesus answered them and the question that they asked of him is very simply authority comes because he's a man. Man was given dominion over the earth, but that man was anointed of God. And that's the authority, the basis of authority that Jesus operated here on the earth. The Bible tells us on occasion that Jesus would cast the devil out of certain ones and the devils would speak his name they'd say we know who you are the Holy One of God they'd say different things in one case one of them said have you come to torment us before the time I love the fact that evil spirits have one thing foremost on their mind and that is that their time is the clock is ticking on them their time is running out I take great comfort in that they know their destruction is coming they know there's a set time They would also say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus would command them not to speak and cast them out. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 5 of the the madman of Gadara, the man that had the legion. Jesus cast the evil spirits out of him, but they implored him to cast him, let him go into somewhere in the country. There's a herd of swine feeding nearby, let us go into them. Jesus gave them leave. They went into the swine, and the swine killed themselves. Now, why did it have such an impact on the herd of swine feeding when that's not the, the result, the immediate result, at least, of the man that was possessed of the legion? Because animals don't have the authority that man has on the earth. Their will is not the same as man's. Animals operate from instinct. And the instinct of animals is to be killed rather than yield to the influence of the devil. Regardless, Satan is always looking for a body to operate in. Without a body, he has no influence whatsoever. Now, I know I'm out of time, but let me cover some things real quick. Turn with me over to John chapter 5. Jesus just explained in Mark chapter 12, the age of man. He's saying just like the, hus- just like the owner of the vineyard had leased it out to the, to the husbandman who treated the prophets poorly, who killed the son, talking about his own death, his uh, impending death and ill treatment. He's saying there's coming a time where the lease runs out. Thank God that's true. Now, Jesus, in John chapter 5, I I was hoping to, to cover this whole thing. First part of the chapter is where Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda, tells him to rise, take up his bed, and walk, and then conveys himself away. The man didn't even know who it was that healed him. And so he gets in trouble with the Jews, the religious leaders, because he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. I kind of like the spunk of this guy. He doesn't care. He's just doing what the guy told him to do that healed him. Jesus found him in the temple and told him to go and send no more lest less the worst thing come upon him. I don't know if that had anything to do with the condition that he had to begin with or not. But nevertheless, that's what he says. And then the man goes back and tells them, tells the religious leaders, the Jews. He said, well, Jesus is the one that healed me. He's just talked to me and I found him in the temple or he found me. It says that from that point in time jesus was persecuted by the jews because he had done these things on the sabbath day verse 18 it says or verse 17 rather jesus answered them and said my father works hitherto and i work in other words god does good things and blesses people and heals people on the sabbath day so i do too Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath but said also that God was his father making himself equal with God. Now I won't read the whole thing but let me pick out a couple of verses. Verse 19. Then answered Jesus and said unto them Verily, verily, I say unto you the Son can do nothing of himself. The Son can do nothing of himself. What does that mean? That means Jesus is not healing people and doing miracles on the earth because he's the Son of God or operating in the power that he had with God before the creations of the world. Most of the church seem to have the idea that Jesus healed the sick to prove that he was the son of God. Jesus is just saying that can't be the case. He said, I'm not doing this of myself. Philippians 2 verses 7 and 8 says that Jesus emptied himself. The literal translation of those verses. King James says he made himself of no reputation. The literal translation of those verses is he emptied himself of his divine power and glory and came to earth as a man. He's operating as a man, as a human being. No more power in him as a human being than you and I would have in and of ourselves. But then he was anointed of God with divine power. This is what he's saying. He's saying the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. In other words, the source of the power is my knowledge of the will of God to heal the sick, cast out devils, and bless people. Skip down to verse uh, 21. For as the father raises up, raises up the dead. And quickens or makes them alive. Even so the son quickeneth whom he will. Now Jesus is saying. That his. Ministering healing to the sick. And casting out devils. Is quickening who he will. He's talking about his earthly ministry. He's talking about because this is the character and the nature of God to quicken the dead and raise up the dead. That's why I can heal who I will. Now, who does Jesus will to heal? Anybody that comes to him. That's why the Bible doesn't give us one example of anybody being turned away. See, some people talk about people being healed by the will of God as if God is picking winners and losers. Jesus picked everybody as a winner. you understand what I mean by that? He goes on in the next verse and says, For the Father judges no man. I want you to notice that phrase. The Father judges no man. Now, how many times do we think of, we mean the modern day church, think of the judgment of God as being bad news for mankind? Jesus said the Father judges no man. I'll explain that in a little bit. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment, has committed all judgment, has committed all judgment unto the Son. What I want you to see, folks, is the authority that Jesus operated in as a man. Remember the Bible says in the Old Testament, the life of the flesh is in in the blood. He's saying the authority belongs to flesh and blood men and women, human beings. Without blood... There is no basis of authority. That's why Jesus had to come to the earth born of a virgin. Had to be born of a virgin to bypass spiritual death that passed from Adam to us. But he had to be a man to have authority, legal authority on the earth. Now that legal authority by being born of a woman and the anointing of God that was given to him, the plan of God for his life, the purpose of God for him here on the earth. Part of that, the biggest part of that in my opinion is to execute judgment. To execute judgment. Now, what judgment did Jesus execute? Remember 1 John chapter 3, verse 8? The last part of the verse says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. See, the judgment Jesus executed was not judgment on man. If the Father judges no man, then that means Jesus is going to do the will of the Father and does only that which he sees the Father do. Which means he's not going to judge man either. So what's he here to judge? The works of the devil. Skip down with me to verse 23. Uh, It's verse 26, I'm sorry. Well, let's just keep reading from verse 22 on. For the father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the son. That all men should honor the son, even as they honor the father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which has sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation or judgment but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Now what's he talking about? Well, there's two meanings here. One meaning is where he's going to preach to the captives in Abraham's bosom. After his resurrection. Or after he pays the price. The dead shall hear the voice of God there. But he's also talking about the spiritually dead. Regarding the formation of the church. The preaching of the gospel. After the resurrection takes place. Verse 26. For as the father has life in himself. So as he given to the son to have life in himself. Same life. Same spirit. And has given him authority to execute judgment. Notice that phrase. Has given him authority to execute judgment. Also, why? Because he's the son of man. Because he's the son of man. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm operating here on the earth as a sinless man. Commissioned of God and anointed of God. Appointed to destroy the works of the devil. For the purpose of executing judgment on Satan and his system. Look with me over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, Jesus speaking of his death, which is soon to come. To get this in context, we're going to have to back up to verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. He that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour." But for this cause came I into this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said it thundered and others said that an angel spoke to him. But Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Notice verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, he's talking about his death. He's talking about going to the cross. He's saying the cross is the judgment of the world. So he's not talking about judging man. He's talking about judging sin. You remember over in Romans chapter 8 where it says Jesus has condemned sin in the flesh? That's what this is talking about. He's passed judgment on sin in the flesh. Now is the judgment of this world. Notice what else he says. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out dislodged from power dislodged from power remember the old testament when God's talking to Moses about going to Pharaoh and saying let my people go he asked him what he had in his hand and Moses said a rod which is a short stick he said cast it on the ground and it did. he did and it turned into a snake Moses ran from it, but then God told him to take it by the tail, and he did, and it turned into a stick again. When he went before Pharaoh, Aaron's now holding the rod, Moses' rod. And at the instruction of the Lord, Aaron casts the snake down, or cast the stick down, and it turns into a snake. Pharaoh's not impressed. He says, Call the magicians. So as two magicians come in there and see what's going on, so they throw the sticks down and they turn into snakes too. Now snakes always represent the devil, sin and or the devil. The difference between their snakes and the rod of Moses that turned into a snake was that Moses' snake swallowed them up. Then he reached down and took hold of it and it became a stick once again. The Bible says in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 11, 1, that there shall come a rod from the stem of Jesse. Stem meaning the root of Jesse. It's talking about Jesus. Moses' rod that turned into a snake was a type of Jesus being made sin. When it was cast down, it turned into a snake, a serpent that represents the devil, sin and the devil. And when the magicians did the same thing, The snake that represented Jesus on the cross being made sin for us swallowed up their snakes, meaning he swallowed up sin and death. There's also a story in Numbers chapter 21, I think it is, where the children of Israel have murmured against God and the fiery serpents come into the camp. Many people were bitten and many people died. They cry unto Moses and say, we've sinned. Because we murmured against you, this is our own doing, but pray for us that we'll be healed. God tells Moses how to do it. He said, make a serpent of brass. Serpent always represents sin and or Satan. Make a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. He that beholdeth the serpent shall live. Well, that's what he did. He made that serpent of brass and put it on the pole and as many as beheld the serpent lived now jesus talked about that referring to himself he told us that that was a type of himself he said as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up and if i be lifted up i'll draw all men unto me it's in john chapter three now here's the significance of that on the cross jesus becomes sin Bible says, Paul writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The snake represents the devil. It represents sin. Jesus was made sin. He took upon himself the same nature as Satan. I know people have a hard time with that, but there's no other way that you can accurately describe what took place. But the fact that it was a brass serpent, a brazen serpent. Brass is a type of divine judgment. God told Israel if they disobeyed his word, the heaven would turn to brass over their heads. That had a natural and a spiritual connotation. It meant there wouldn't be any rain to help the crops grow. But it also meant a spiritual dearth or famine. There would be no spiritual help from God apart from his word. So when Jesus was made sin on the cross, the divine judgment of God came upon him. Not because God's judgment is being passed upon Jesus. It's the only way God could pass judgment on sin. Now remember what we just read. We just read in John chapter 5, as the father has life in himself, so is he given to the son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. The authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. Bible tells us in the New Testament what really pertains to us in the exercise of our authority. Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus having spoiled principalities and powers made a show of them openly. Hebrews chapter 2, I think it's verse 15. says that Jesus went to the cross, took upon him the nature of flesh so that he could go to the cross To destroy him that had the power of death. To destroy him that had the power of death. To destroy him that had the power of death. Now we think of destroy as being annihilating and removing something from existence. That word destroy literally means to make ineffective or to paralyze. Jesus took upon himself because of the execution of judgment upon sin. Jesus paralyzed the devil. So what does that mean? That means the same thing for us as it meant for the children of Israel in Numbers 21. Those that were bitten when they beheld the serpent of brass on the pole, those that were bitten lived. And they overcame the effects and the influence of the devil against them. God's intent was for that serpent of brass to be a representation of the sacrifice that Jesus would make so that the devil would have no further influence over them even though it was their own sin that brought about the problem. And if that was the will of God for them, what's the will of God for you? The Bible says Jesus went to the cross because the plan of God was to put the devil under his feet. Paul goes on to say, we don't, see, we don't yet see all things under our feet, but we do see one thing. We see Jesus. We see the example of the exercise of his authority to be the same pattern that we're to follow to exercise ours. Thank God for the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. If these things would dawn on us, I mean, if we'd really see them, the devil would be done for. You'd never have another devil problem in your life. That doesn't mean he wouldn't throw up roadblocks. Doesn't mean he wouldn't try to hinder you. Paul said that. Paul said to the Thessalonians, he said, I would have come to you several times, but Satan hindered me. The devil will annoy you. He has still has a right here on the earth, a right to operate here on the earth. But he doesn't have a right to influence you, to keep you out of the plan and the blessings and the purpose of God. Amen? Well, let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to see these things. Help us to see, Lord... The exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. Help us to see the great extent of our authority in the earth. Help us to see, Father, that the devil has absolutely no influence over us unless we give it to him. And we've decided not to give him any influence. Not to give him any place. Father, we say that we're filled with the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you that the eyes of our understanding are enlightened and are being enlightened, that we come to the realization and the knowledge of the hope of your calling and the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints and the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. Father, we declare that Satan has no power over us. We operate in the wisdom of God according to your word So we refuse to yield our influence and our authority unto him and his deceptive means. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Say this after me. Satan, take your hands off my body in Jesus' name. Take your hands off my finances in Jesus' name. Take your hands off my family in the name of Jesus. I speak according to the word of God, which says whom the Son has set free is free indeed, is free in every respect, is absolutely free, is totally free in every area. I declare that you have no influence in my life. In Jesus' name, I resist you. I refuse to allow your works to hinder me from what Jesus purchased with his own precious blood. Amen. 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 Say it with me. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.